Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and its surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story with you, Jed, and I don't suppose you happen to remember what it was about. It was about doors. Doors everywhere. Um, It was about the linguistic history of Sydney, told through the story of William Dawes' diaries, um, which sort of covered the very, very first years of the settlement at Sydney Cove, the British settlement. Indeed it was. Uh, And at that time, you also gave me a clue about what this episode would be about. Would you be able to give me that one more time? Because it was a real cracker of a clue. Yes, I can, Alistair. And the clue for this week is about a place that's been pulling beers for almost 200 years. And a drink at this place was just as momentous in 1823 as it is today. It's an excellent clue. And at the time, I got a bit caught up in pubs in the rocks. You uh, rightly pointed out that maybe that wouldn't be a momentous place to drink. I later that evening got very excited and thought that it might have something to do with that massive party that was thrown at Volklu's house when one of the house when one of those uh, governors was kind of kicked out of the colony. But I think that that's the wrong timing, possibly. But I thought, well, that might work because if they were having a party there, maybe in the early 1800s, and then if you had like a wedding there or something like that, it would be a momentous occasion. But I think the timing's off, and I'm not sure that they're pulling beers at Volklu's house. I, I think of it more as a Devonshire tea kind of place. <laughs> An interesting angle. So I've decided to go in a slightly different direction this week. And rather than telling you the answer to the clue now, I will slowly let the story unfold before your eyes. And you can continue to chime in with guesses as we narrow in on what the story is actually about. Well, this is an exciting new development. I love it. So before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast In my case, that's the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And in my case, the Nisanon people of the Yuba River watershed. And the land on which this week's history takes place, which is predominantly the Darug people of Western Sydney Mm. and the Wiradjuri people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Very good. I already have a clue right there. Yeah. It's nowhere near Volklu's house. I like it. (laughs) I think the first thing I should say is that you were right in pointing out that the term pulling beers might be something of a misleading clue because I don't think that anyone was actually pulling beers in Australia in 1823. They were mostly drinking rum. Well, that was the next thing I thought. I don't think that beer was a particularly common drink back there, but maybe. I, I don't, maybe there was some beer around, but I do believe that rum was the primary form of alcohol consumed. Yeah, so the, um, the, the, the reason I chose that particular slogan is because it, it rhymes, in case you didn't spot that. It does sound very good. <laughs> it sounds great. And I, I actually co-opted it from a billboard that greets you as you drive into a town called Wallenbean, which is on the Olympic Highway. And that sign, that billboard's informing tr- thirsty travellers that the pub there has been pulling beers for over 100 years, and it gets me every time. <laughs> so that doesn't have anything to do with the story. That does sound really tempting. I, I feel like I'd turn off the highway just for that. Yeah, unfortunately, every time I've passed it has been for work, so I've yet to sample one of their famous beers. So I think that probably a better way to frame the clue to help you on your journey of discovery today was that they were serving drinks in 1823, and drinks are still being served there today. More accurate, 
but less punchy. Yeah, it didn't. It doesn't have the same ring. I'm glad you that <laughs> you did kind of confuse me with the the pulling beers, but I was still way off. So I'm thinking it has to be something along the train line. You did mention the Wiradjuri people who are on the other side of the Blue Mountains. So that, but then also you said pre- predominantly the Darug people, which is Greater Western Sydney. So I'm thinking somewhere it could be Parramatta, Golden. I don't know. Uh, it could end up towards Bathurst, Emu Plains. Well, stay tuned to find out. So the first the first part of this story is about the um, the Blue Mountains before the British invasion, and we don't know a lot about indigenous habitation in the Blue Mountains, but it's suspected that it wasn't somewhere that was lived in year round, but rather a place that different nations and groups went to. Um, for you know many of the similar reasons people might visit the Blue Mountains today um, to meet with people from other sides of the mountains. Um, it's a beautiful place, trade, corroborees, you know, all these sorts of reasons. So the main groups we're talking about here are the Darug coming up from Western Sydney, um, the Wiradjuri coming up from the area around Lithgow and Bathurst, and the Gundungara people who are coming up from the Southern Highlands. And so there are a few sites associated with Indigenous history in the Blue Mountains, but based on yeah, fairly limited knowledge, ongoing knowledge about it, it seems like it wasn't somewhere where there was people living in the winter, basically. And also in droughts, there's no water up there. So not really suited to full-time habitation. Right. That makes sense. That I'd also read a little bit about that uh, before. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Can fact check me then? Uh, well, from my limited research, I can indeed. That's exactly what I've heard. Excellent. That's a rubber stamp. So when the British first got to the point of crossing the Blue Mountains, which um, took tw- took 25 years, actually, from from the arrival of the First Fleet in Sydney Cove, there's no first-hand information on this, but it's suspected that the, the routes that were eventually successful in crossing the mountains um, were tipped off by the Darug people. So the, the people that found these routes through were told by Darug people or potentially even directly guided through them because they're extraordinarily difficult to find on your own. And as people, Darug people would have known these routes to get to the bloom, to get up to the mountains, there's a strong chance that when the Europeans did eventually find their way through, it would have been um, guided by Darug people or at least on their advice. And I think it's a pretty good indication that the Darug people were quite tight-lipped about them since it took 25 years for anyone to figure it out. Yeah, and would these have also been the kind of tracks that maybe there was somewhat more beaten down paths of like some sorts so it was easier to follow those tracks than it was to just beat through otherwise kind of overgrown land? By all accounts, it was unbelievably dense, the bushland, when the first... Uh, British explorers did come through. So, yes, there was probably like a foot foot tracks, but, gee, they must have been narrow because right. the process of clearing just to make it wide enough for horses to come through seemed to be pretty intense. Right. Um, and the other thing is the mountains is really cliffy. Mm-hmm. So what would happen when all like, – because obviously a lot of people tried to get up there prior to Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland. But what had happened is they'd come to these cliffs and be like, well, there's just no way through here. So the, the extra knowledge that would have been necessary was to do with how to overcome those obstacles. Right, and find ridges to go along, which I believe the train line now goes along a ridge, right? Yeah, exactly. So 
the first the first successful crossing of the Blue Mountains by the new colonialists was by Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland, which was in May 1813. Um, so that's the sort of story that is well told in Australian history books. Oh, yeah. All of your primary school, uh, you know, you have houses that they're named after. My primary school, there was Blacksland, Lawson and Wentworth. And then they needed a fourth one. I don't know why you need four houses. I can't remember who they named that after. <laughs> well, hopefully they named it after uh, George Evans because we'll get to him shortly. Now, do you know anything about the crossing of Wentworth, Lawson, Blacksland? Uh, I once, out of interest, read the first couple of pages of Blacksland's diary, I believe, but I didn't get much out of it. I can't remember much of it uh, anymore, apart from the fact that he was talking about how dense the bushland was, which I guess is interesting because all of the accounts that we seem to have of the kind of plains around Sydney are all kind of gobsmacked Europeans at how well managed the land is and how widely spaced the trees are and that it looks like they keep comparing it to English gardens and things like that. So I guess it would have been a very different uh, area, as you were saying, the Blue Mountains. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The story of the Central West in that regard was one of cleared open plains with the odd tree and then densely forested hilltops. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing the mountains was the same story. They were fairly wealthy landowners who were heading west to try and find themselves some more land they weren't sort of on an expedition for the for the greater public good they weren't given kind of instructions by the government or anything like that they had Macquarie's sanction for the trip but it wasn't directed from the government okay so they've also got fairly interesting backgrounds um blacksland was a typical well-off free settler so he came out from england with free passage paid for by the crown brought all his possessions to Australia where he realised they were much more valuable and so sold them at enormous profit. He was given a huge land grant and free convict Mm labour. And so with all those components provided courtesy of the crown, it was almost impossible not to become phenomenally wealthy. Yeah. And he was also one of the first winemakers in the colony. Oh, I was wondering when the drinks were going to come in. (laughs) Now, Lawson, he was a surveyor. And he was one of those jack-of-all-trades pastoralists that I mentioned last episode. Uh-huh. Um, so he also ended up stupendously wealthy and with vast estates by virtue of land grants. Right, because you're just being given huge pieces of land that was obviously indigenous land and just being told by a government, this is now yours and it's wor- and it would then become to be worth a lot of money, this land that you officially had the paperwork for. Well, and it was enormously profitable to run cattle on. It was great, great country for cattle okay. and sheep. So, and they had free labor by virtue of convict labor that was also given to them. So, you know, if you got a land grant. Sorry, this is in what's now greater Western Sydney. Yeah. Cool. Yep. So Lawson ended up actually being the first person to take cattle across the mountains. So obviously the trip worked out quite well for him in the end. And he was the first person to find coal west of the mountains. Oh. So based on those two things, you could probably say he is more responsible than any one other person for the envir- environmental degradation of inland New South Wales. <laughs> Damn that man. I didn't even know there was much coal inland. I thought it was all kind of around Newcastle was the accessible coal. Uh, no, there's a big, big power station and coal mine around Lithgow. So a go. lot of Sydney's power comes from west of the mountains. Yeah. Thank you for telling me that. I did not know that. And uh, number three is Wentworth, and Wentworth is a currency lad. Oh, now I believe that that might mean that he was originally... No, he's the child of convicts, is that correct? Or he's born in Australia? There you go. It means it means someone's born in Australia. Okay. Um, so he, was, he sort of became to be the first famous white Australian that was born in Australia. Okay. Overseas. And he was the young gun of the team, 
And he also made an incredible fortune from all the high productivity land that he was given and also an inheritance from his dad. And he is probably best remembered as the owner and commissioner of Vorklu's house. Oh, okay. So that might well have been his party that you were referring to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Sorry. Yes, that is exactly who it is. That's why the electorate there is still called Wentworth. Yeah, exactly. And so they made it across the mountains. They got to a place called Mount Blacksland. Well, I take it they named it that. It wasn't already. (laughs) There was a sign. And so that's just south of Lithgow. Mm -hmm. And they, from there, could see wide open plains. Thought, yep, that'll do. Turned around and headed back. Were they marking the track or something, like Hansel and Gretel style, so that they could find their way? Well, Lawson's a surveyor, so they were doing one better than uh, (laughs) dropping breadcrumbs. Yeah, they were they were blazing trees, and um, also Lawson took took notes on bearing and distance so that it could be retraced fairly okay. easily. That was May of 1813. In November of 1813, Macquarie sent the assistant surveyor, who was George uh-huh. Evans, and he took along with him a man called Burns, who was in Blacksland, Lawson and Wentworth's party, to be his guide. Right, okay. And, and I wanted to ask a bit more about these trees that were being blazed. So they were carrying fire with them and then kind of burning a tree every once in a while so you could just kind of follow those as your markers of going the right way. Um, no, they blaze them with an axe. So you basically just oh. cut a big, a big gash in a tree and then when you come to it, it's quite obvious that there's a mark in the tree. That makes a lot more sense. I was wondering how they were carrying the fire around or if they started a new fire every time and it seemed wildly like could have gone very wrong in many ways. But yeah. blazing with an axe makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and it's a it's a method of um like a of marking trees that was used as surveying until relatively recently. So sometimes when you're out looking for reference marks placed from a survey from the 19th century, you'll find a tree that's been blazed, and it might have an arrow pointed in it with a number that's referenced on the plan, um, or something like that. And something the penny just dropped for me because I believe that must be where the phrase trailblazer comes from. Yes. Haha. <laughs> there you go. So uh, you were right in saying that the route that all four of these explorers followed is the route that roughly follows uh, what is now the Great Western Highway and also the train line is similar. So basically up to Katoomba, across to Mount Victoria, and then down. Right. I don't want to get too antsy here, but we're quite a long way in. I still haven't heard anything about these drinks that you've been promising. Nah, you will, you will. So Evans, he followed the others and he went a bit further. He went all the way out to Bathurst, which he named after the colonial secretary. His bloody colonial secretaries. I think Sydney's named after the colonial secretary, right? Yeah, and they never came. Yeah, so ungrateful. It's, it's seem, yeah, it's a shame. And Evans, had the uh, being the official sanctioned guy, had the pleasure of naming many of the things he came across. And boy, are there a few classics so apart from Bathurst, which is a fairly sort of straightforward it's choice, land. Yeah. He, uh, he named also the Macquarie River after his benefactor. Yeah, Macquarie has a lot of things named after him. Most of that he did himself, actually, yeah, he... but the river was named by Evans. Okay. Now, the, when he got over the mountains, the first thing he came to was a, a river, a small, a small brook, I suppose, um, which is in a place that we now call Hartley. And he named it, uh, well, he didn't, he didn't name it. He, he referred to it in his diary as a rivulet, except he couldn't spell rivulet, so he wrote riverlet, and now we know it today as the riverlet. That's great. Yeah. He also named the most sort of uh, obvious landmark on the journey from um, Lithgow to Bathurst on the plains there that sticks out, this big rocky escarpment that sticks out. He named that Evans Crown. 
Nice. So that one looks really cool. I'll name that one after me. Yeah, and the first river he came to that was flowing westerly was teeming with fish. So He called it Fish River. Bingo. (laughs) Brilliant. This man was a man of great inventiveness. And he's the one who I've mentioned to you before, where in his diary he always says, gee, I wish they'd sent someone who could describe this phenomenal landscape, but I can't, so I'll just say that it is truly incredible, and words to that effect over and over again. He literally couldn't find the words. And I just wanted to ask as well, you said that the the Fish River was uh, the first one he found heading west. Uh, the, the Macquarie River also flows west, right? But did you just find that afterwards? Yeah, so the, the Macquarie forms the confluence of the fish and the Campbell. Okay. I take it the fish is no longer uh, flooded with fish. No, no, sadly not. It's been dammed and degraded by uh, cattle grazing. So Probably Lawson's fault. Yeah, and car- if you do find fish in there, it'll be carp. Yeah. I think that might be the Germans' fault, but that's another story for another day. Absolutely. Stop trying to derail mine. <laughs> so Evans came back at the end of 1813, said, we're good to go. And just the next year, Macquarie sent a man called Cox uh, with a gang of convicts to build a road from Emu Plains to Bathurst. And he wasn't, they weren't very well equipped, but they did have almost unlimited supply of free labor. So they did do it and they got it done in six months. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I believe that would have been quite backbreaking work and it would have been done by the convicts who were in like the harshest punishment kind of uh, roles where they were in chain gangs and stuff like that. That image of convicts having a really tough time. Uh, potentially. I think they were all offered pardons once it was done. Okay. So I think it kind of attracted people that were ready to get like maybe your, your, your heavy hitters, your go-getters amongst the convicts. <laughs> so they... They built the road and it followed that same route that I've already talked about. And in 1815, Macquarie headed out with his party to check it all out for himself and to plant the flag at Bathurst um, and proclaim it a town and claim everything west of the mountains for the British crown. Um, He then immediately banned access. So basically you weren't allowed to cross that road. There was a guard on near the Nepean. Oh. Blocking people from being able to go over there unless you had consent from him. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it was a few more years after that until those herds of Merino were let loose. Okay. Because they kind of knew it was prime land, so they didn't want just anyone going over there and take, like, and claiming it as a white settler. They kind of wanted to apportion it to the people they found. Exactly. Macquarie wanted to use it um, as a sort of tool for development of the town. He was a very kind of... Um, benevolent dictator sort of figure right as i understand it that would sort of end up being his downfall and when the next guy replaced him who might be brisbane i think um it it was much more of a free-for-all okay um now when you're crossing the mountains along the original route it was obviously a, a very difficult road to follow but the most difficult point was the descent off mount york and that's where you get past mount victoria and it's kind of your first view looking west and there's just this big drop-off cliffs into the, the valley below. So the all the early um, diarists on the on the Cox's Road heading out west to settle or whatever, they referred to it as the Big Hill. It's <laughs> a good name. Yeah. Yeah, if you can imagine what a road built across the mountains with convict labour in six months was like, you can probably try, maybe get a handle on what the road looked like when it had to drop 
400 odd vertical meters in in one kilometer bit of a rough road um, probably just hacked up rock and soil but in no particularly good order well don't don't let me explain it for you <laughs> a quote perhaps let the d- diary of three french gentlemen who I'm not even going to bother mispronouncing, so can you please pronounce these names for me? <laughs> oh, of course, in my finest French accent. Oh, one's got a Q. I don't know how to pronounce Q in French. Coy uh, Gaudichaud and Perillon. So the, the Coy Gaudichaud and Perillon <laughs> were touring Bathurst in 1819, and they said that the road as it came down Mount York was built on the side of the mountain round which it curves. This ascent is 13 or 14 paces wide. Its outer edge, which overlooks a frightful precipice, is protected by a wooden railing. Enormous blocks of granite, which the water seems to have undermined by the passing of time, and which sometimes, projecting and almost isolated, seem to hang over the traveller's head or threaten to fall on it. At other times, separate to leave between them a narrow passage. Untidy plants, dead upturned shrubs, Abysses where the eye only plunges in terror. Everything gives this place a look of wild grandeur. Wow. It's, it does sound very beautiful. It sounds like something out of a gothic novel. Yeah, and it's still there today. Um, you can check it out on Mount York, and there's actually reasonably good uh, evidence of where the original road used to be. Oh, wow. and you can really make it out. It's pretty cool. Can you uh, try to walk down it? You absolutely can. It's a walking track. Oh, my gosh. I need to go and do this. Yep. You can live history. Wow. And so I'm a little interested, I would say, in how we've managed to now build a road that I've driven west of the Blue Mountains and didn't seem particularly steep to me. Were they missing something or they just didn't have the, I don't know, uh, explosives and uh, heavy machinery that we do now? Yeah, it was it was to do with the machinery. Right. And so the diversion that was built eventually will come into the story shortly. Uh, with the drinks, I hope. Yeah, with the drinks. <laughs> So at least I'm talking about Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> so the another Frenchman, René Lasson, he came down the road in 1824, and now this is where this is where our story perhaps starts. So he said that at the foot of Mount York is the beginning of a deep winding valley that has a little stream flowing at the bottom of it and is covered with splendid pastures. The valley was named by Governor Macquarie the Vale of Clude on account of its resemblance to a place of this name to be found in the north of Wales. Hmm. The Vale is quite European in appearance, and its vegetation even is identical with most of our plants. Its aspect is smiling, its surface fresh and bright, borrowing new charm from the harshness of the scantily wooded and very rocky mountains that surround it. How pleasant. Do you know the Vale of Clude in Wales, being of Welsh heritage? <laughs> I certainly don't, though the, my mum is from the north of Wales, so I guess maybe she knows. About the Vale of Clude. So that's where the River Let is that, that Evans <laughs> named. River Let. <laughs> so then, Alistair, if we're in this gorgeous valley, yeah. just on the other side of the mountains. Good place for a drink, I'd say. <laughs> sure is. So in 1823, there, being eight years after the road was built, an emancipist, Pierce Collett. An emancipist being a convict who's then been, like, finished his time and is now a free person, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So prior to Macquarie being governor, the emancipists were given a bad name and a hard time, but he recognised that if the colony had any chance of success, it would need to rely on the the bulk of knowledge and skills that existed in the convict pool rather than the sort of free settlers that came out were often, um, you know, people kind of looking to make a quick buck and caused a lot of trouble, whereas the convicts were, were more like your you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps types. So he sort of set about trying to change the structure of the society in New South Wales to give more emphasis on the emancipists. Mm-hmm. So in that vein, he set up a pub there. Uh, his partner was Mary Collett. And interestingly, she came out as a free person with him when he was convicted and transported. And so she was she was already a landowner. She had 70 acres on the Nepean. Yeah, by the time that he went out, they went out there to open the pub, they were already quite prosperous. He'd been pardoned 10 years earlier. Right, okay. And he had land and blah, blah, blah. So they had money and they went out and put a pub down. So that was in 1823 and they opened their pub in the Vale of Clude and they called it the Golden Fleece. Do you know why they might have done that? Oh, from Greek mythology. Well, yes, but also... Because of the merinos. <laughs> thank you. Yes, there it is. <laughs> Really make me work for that one. Well, it is from Greek mythology, but yeah. So because the merino, the merino sheep are uh, making so much money for those pastoralists in Australia. Yeah, and there was a 20th century car oil brand with the same name. Oh. And so the pub, despite being you know just a pub, it was pretty iconic for its moment. Governor Darling visited and he praised it, Ooh. and also everyone heading west would have known it very, very well because it was. You know, it was that sign that you kind of made it, I suppose. Right. And we have a couple of articles from the Australian newspaper, which is not the one that exists today, but one that existed for 24 years in the early 19th century of people describing what it was like to arrive at the Golden Fleece. So one anonymous letter in 1827 says that we were now in the Vale of Clude, a pretty grassy plain of small extent, hemmed in on every side but one, with lofty mountains. And after a smart ride of two miles along the valley... We arrived at Collett's Inn, the Golden Fleece, the rest and be thankful of the Blue Mountains. We cannot pause at a better place. Ooh, very nice. Though they probably weren't having a beer. (laughs) Can I slip in another? Another (laughs) quote? Why not? Why not? I assure you there is only one better inn in the whole country, for it is warm, comfortable and commodious in the inside as it is beautiful and picturesque without. The house is neat in the extreme, and the brightness, order, and almost Dutch cleanliness of the kitchen pleased and surprised me. (laughs) To arrive at Collett's Inn is, like passengers going ashore from a weary voyage, everything appears a couleur de rose. Oh, wow. This is quite high praise. Does it still, (laughs) is it still standing today in the same form that it was built in 1823? Can we see this marvellous inn? Yeah, it's, it's still there. Pulling beers, mate. Well, now it's pulling beers. We'll have to find out when they first start. You have to go there and ask them, when did you guys start pulling beers? Well, I have been there. Uh And uh, there is a history room attached to it where one can do their own research on such questions. (laughs) So feel free to, to go there and figure it out and get back to me on that. So obviously, you know, everyone loves it. Raving about it. Can't get enough of the place. Governor Darling, big tick of endorsement. But unfortunately, Fortune smiled but briefly on the call it's in because... Eventually, it became a government priority as the West uh, grew to build an alternative route down the mountain. And mow that in down so that you can have a nice big wide highway going through. (laughs) Well, they they built the route in a completely different location. Oh, I see. So it was like like the Cars movie where no one goes to their small town anymore. 
Haven't seen it, but yes. Mm. So they opened uh, a road that's called Victoria Pass or Mitchell's Pass. And that's the road still in use today, which was opened in 1831. I think making it probably one of the older pieces of road infrastructure still in use. Yeah, so that was very soon afterwards. It was only eight years after the... Yeah, the collet scene in in that location only had eight years. And it made, obviously, quite an impression in that period. Yeah. What the new road did is it goes, sort of heads due west from Mount Victoria rather than heading north along the ridge to Mount York. And... The, Mount, the reason why they couldn't go down Mount Victoria in the first place is because there was a big, like a gap between the mountains with the new, um, I guess, construction infrastructure they had by that stage and more money for such projects. They um, basically, yeah, like built this enormous causeway linking the two mountains. Okay. And yeah, it's it's still there today. And you've if you've driven over the mountains anytime lately, you've almost certainly driven over it. A bridge? Do you mean a, it's a bridge of some sort? or uh, It's more like a mounding up of stone and rock to okay. create like a like a, a kind of viaduct linking yep. these two mountains. So it's just after Mount Victoria as you start coming down the hill. And if you pull into a car park, if you're heading west and you pull into a car park just before you start going down the hill after Mount Victoria, there's a lookout with an excellent view of it. And it's also the reason, it's one of the big obstacles to duplicating the highway there because it's it's very narrow, so it can't be made. The highway can't be made four lanes in that point. Okay. Um, without demolishing the heritage listed oh, bridge. Oh, I see. And they can say, and if they tried mm. to like make the pile bigger on the side, they would do damage to the heritage listed viaduct bridge thing. Exactly. So Pierce Collett, not to be put out, moved his license to Hartley, which is <laughs> on the new road, and opened a new pub there. Not called the Golden Fleece, though. No. Okay, so that's that's our pub from 1823. Yeah. Where we were pulling pulling beers or not pulling beers, maybe cracking open bottles of rum. <laughs> yeah. Um now we can we can obviously see why that was momentous. Why do you think it might be momentous to have a drink there today? Oh, yeah. No, I guess because it would have been momentous back then you've crossed the mountains. It's uh there's wide plains ahead of you. This is a new area of European development. Uh, and sadly, dispossession of more indigenous people. But it would have been a momentous occasion in any case. Uh, today, it sounds like a small building in the middle of nowhere that's been bypassed by a highway. And I would say it's momentous because it's where your sister got married. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, my, my sister got married on Zoom because it was <laughs> two months ago and weddings were only allowed to be five people. But it's a good guess. Let's, uh, let's keep on with the story and we'll find out. So the house, after Pierce and Mary moved to Hartley a few k's um, back on the highway, the house became a private residence and was periodically empty sort of on and off over the course of the next 150 years. Hang on, so you're saying they stopped pulling beers? They did. They stopped pulling beers in... An, in 1831, when the what? highway said, bypassed Oh, it. this clue is getting more and more sketchy by the day. Firstly, they weren't even pulling beers. <laughs> Secondly, they, there was a definitely a long period of not pulling beers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was. There was a gap in the beer pulling of about 150 years. <laughs> but in that, in that lengthy period of without any beers being pulled, a musical got made about Collett's Oh, no way. Uh yeah, uh, in the 1930s, two Mossman neighbours, Varney Monk and Stuart Gurr, 
decided to write a musical about the Collets Inn, and it debuted at the Savoy Theatre, which was on Bly Street in Sydney in 1932. And it featured songs such as Corroboree Ballet, Dangerous Dick Dandy, and We're Singing for Australia. Do you know any of those songs? No, they're just funny names. And Corroboree Ballet sounds like it could be incredibly racist. <laughs> yeah, well, I have no idea. I haven't seen the musical. Uh, but being from the early 1930s, I'd say that's a fair bet. Yep. There were plans for a movie in the 30s as well, but it never got off the ground. But it did quite well. It went to Melbourne as well. Mm-hmm. From what I could find out, the last full time, like the last full production of the show was um, in 1970 in the Campbelltown High School Auditorium. Oh, right. Wow. So it ran for about 40 years. Mm. And it was even performed by our alma mater, Sydney Boys High School, in 1951. Wow. But it seems like it quite quickly devolved into just being performed at high school. So maybe it wasn't quite <laughs> as successful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it seems like the script is still floating around on the internet in... Like, you can acquire the hard copy of it. So, if anyone wants to dust off the Collettsin musical, now's your chance. I have to track it down. Okay, that still doesn't help me understand why it's momentous to have a drink there now. No, it doesn't. It's just an interesting aside. Yeah, that is an interesting aside. <laughs> In 1998, a Sydney couple bought the house, which had been empty for a few decades, and they lovingly restored it into its current state which, you know, like a lot of restorations, is sort of probably rebuilt to a large extent, but trying where possible to maintain the original elements. And they opened a bougie French restaurant in it. Oh, so it's quite a high-end date these days. Well, in 1998, it was a high-end date. Oh, gosh, it keeps going. (laughs) So many reinventions. They probably weren't even pulling beers in this French restaurant. Highly unlikely. I think asking for a pulled beer would get you thrown out of most most French restaurants. And there's this brilliant Sydney Morning Herald lifestyle piece from 2002. And the author likens the 21st century culinary gap between Blackheath and Orange to the journey across the mountains 180 years earlier. Wow. Um, and the respite that Colts in provides in both cases. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, that's quite rude, but wouldn't put it past a Sydney paper. <laughs> yeah. But the place, obviously, running a French fine dining restaurant um in a in a back road not the uh, best location too well no No, it's it's it's, it didn't last so today you were very close to being right actually wedding venue collets in is reinvented itself as a wedding venue and how much did collets in pay you to plug it for 42 minutes in this podcast (laughs) (laughs) they paid me nothing but um it's a i have been there and not to a wedding though and yeah, it's a really awesome place and there's um, there's a history room there. So if you are interested in learning more about the history of Colleton, you can go there and look at that. They're totally cool for people to sort of come in and have a look. The other interesting thing about it in the contemporary sense is that they were really affected by the um, December 2019 bushfires. Uh-huh. So if when I was there, which was in February, the whole hillside of Mount York and oh. that path down Mount York was completely burnt out. And you can see where the bushfires came right up to the to the barn at the back of Collets Inn. Wow. So, yeah, we're, we're, I guess in some respects we're lucky to still have it. But they were able to save the property. Yep, yep. They didn't suffer any major damage, um, which is good. As you probably have figured out, Alistair, the reason that I was there was for my documentary on the Macquarie River that I'm working on, in which Collets Inn will feature. Right, because this is the very, very start of the river that will then become the Macquarie River. Is that right? No. 
Yeah. It's not right. So, uh, these are easterly flowing rivers. But um, in the documentary, we start the story heading sort of from the direction of Sydney in the in the manner in which the rivers were discovered by Evans, okay. to use the term discovered fairly loosely. Very loosely, yeah. So it's easterly flowing from there, but I thought we were on the other side of the mountains at this point. We're on the other side of the Blue Mountains in terms of you drop off the mountains to come down into the valleys below, but we're not across the range, being the Great Divide which is still further west. So when Wentworth, Lawson and Blacksland crossed the mountains, they never crossed to the other side of the divide. Huh. So where does where's the watershed then? Where's the end of the continental divide? Tune in to my documentary when it is released to find out more. The divide runs through a town called Rydal, which is between Lithgow and Bathurst. Oh. And so everything prior... So basically from, yeah, let's say, halfway between Lithgow and Bathurst, everything east of there flows east. So you've got... The River Let uh, flowing into the Coxes River, which flows down into Warragamba. Wow. Um, and the Nepean. And then once you get past Rydal, it's westerly flowing country. So you've got the Fish and the Campbell, which become the Macquarie. Huh. And if you are interested in learning more about this area and the, f- the first road that was built across the mountains, which is the Coxes Road, there's an excellent book called Coxes Road Dreaming, and it's structured as like a kind of self-led travel book, highlighting all the things of, of historical significance between Emu Plains and Bathurst that still are there today. Cool. Yeah, it's really noticeable when you go along that highway or that train line that really everything's right next to it there. It just follows that one path. Mm. And that, my friend Alistair, is the story of Collitzin, a place that has really not been pulling beers for 200 years. <laughs> Well, that, thank you so much for that, Jed. That, that, I really, really enjoyed that story. Uh, I particularly like that there's a lot of places that we, you can still see and go to and things like that, and that we ended up at this this pub that hadn't been pulling beers for 200 years at the end of the day because that's now somewhere that I'm definitely going to put on my list of places to go. I, and I love the idea of walking down that the original very precarious uh, road down the steep descent on the, of the mountains. That was a really cool story. Thanks for sharing it. You're very welcome. And what fresh content can I look forward to in a fortnight's time? (laughs) Well, Jed, I'm glad that you uh, came to that question because I have a clue for you that I've also tried to make somewhat cryptic. It's nothing like your one, but this one hopefully is a little bit more factually correct. Yeah. (laughs) So my my episode for fortnight's time uh, concerns an unsavory event that took place in Darlinghurst in 1889 and has never happened again in the history of New South Wales. Got any ideas? I don't. Uh, it must be It must be pretty specific if we can be sure that it's never happened again. Yeah. Um, it must be something that would be very well publicised. My natural instinct thinking about Darlinghurst at that point in time was that it was going to be something like really seedy, but seedy things happen without people knowing yes constantly <laughs> yeah so i'm thinking something big i'm wondering about an assassination perhaps uh i know we have had one political assassination in new south wales since then so it's probably not going to be an assassination but something of that ilk is where my thoughts are heading at the moment well i definitely like where you're going with your thoughts jed you're uh, on the right path and I'll leave you a, for, a fortnight or so to mull it over. Maybe you get some tips from our listeners. And, yeah, I'm looking forward to telling you all about it in a fortnight's time. 
I'm looking forward to hearing about it. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or if you'd like to know more about anything you heard on this week's podcast, you can reach us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney, or you can email us, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. And if you have any suggestions for a story that you think we will all enjoy, please do send them on to us by email. We've already received a couple, or at least I have, which have been super helpful. And our uh, episode next fortnight is actually going to be from a suggestion from one of our listeners, which is really exciting. Uh, Please indicate in that email whether it's for me or for Jed in the subject line so that the other one knows not to read the email and spoil the surprise. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, then please rate, review, and share it with your friends and family. See you next time for My Story from Sydney.